to 8, and chapter 10 from verse 23 to 11 verse 1. Um, There's Bibles on the back table if you'd like to follow along. First Corinthians chapter 8 from verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Then chapter 10 from verse 23. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the Church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Thanks, Hannah. Steve uh, talked before about middle names. He said uh, his mother's name was Elvira. My middle name's Raymond. I was named after... Well, I didn't think it was that funny, but... I uh, <laughs> thought it was not too bad, but uh, 
I was named after my, uh, after my mother's father, whose name was Keith Raymond, and uh, they thought that he didn't like his, his uh, first name, and so they called me Carl instead of Keith. So Carl Raymond instead of Keith Raymond. It turned out it was his middle name that he didn't like, uh, and uh, he didn't mind his first name. But we can all be thankful, or I can be thankful, that they got it wrong. Uh, I'd rather be Carl than Keith. No offence to any Keiths here. Uh, but uh, there you go. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your grace to us in Jesus, uh, Lord, that you have made your name known to us in Christ. And uh, Lord, we want to know what it means uh, to live in the light of that grace and to know what it means to live uh, as your people, uh, named after Christ, Christians, what it means to live as Christians uh, in this world uh, that does not know you. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to live for your glory uh, and for the salvation of those uh, around us. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, imagine uh, with me living in a world like the people who received this letter that uh, Hannah just read a part of before. Imagine what it would have been like for the people in Corinth, the Corinthians, the world that they lived in. Imagine living in a world where everything that you did risked being, uh, you risked being brought within distance of corruption, uh, paganism and idolatry. Uh, maybe you're a slave working for a master and the whole household that you live in revolves around the worship of a Roman god. Everything that the household does is organised on that basis and there you are, you're a slave in the household. No rights, very little choice. How do you live? Maybe you're married to somebody. Maybe you're a woman, powerless in society, or married to somebody who is a fervent believer in a Roman god and whose life revolves around that god. How do you live in that relationship as a believer? And then... Every time you leave the house, the same things happen. The society as well, not just your household, is based on pagan principles. The government is run on pagan principles. It actively promotes the worship of false gods and tries to prevent, in many cases, the worship of the true God. You can't even go to the shops and buy food without brushing up against some kind of idolatry, some kind of paganism. The food comes straight from the temple. Should you buy it? Someone invites you to a birthday party at the local temple. Should you go? What does it mean to live as a believer in a world where every action that you take seems to run the risk of compromise? And pollution, if you like, with false gods and paganism. Well, that was the situation of the Corinthians. And to be honest, it's not too different from our own situation. We live in a society that fundamentally, by and large, denies the existence of God. We live in a world that is founded on other principles, the worship of money, the worship of sex, the worship of personal autonomy... 
Uh, And the effects of that foundation are everywhere. Everywhere that we go, everything that we do, we risk being caught up in compromise. How do we live in that way, in that world? We can't buy anything, for example, without it being compromised in some way. Maybe it's a product of slave-like working conditions. Perhaps the company that that we're buying things from uses the profits to support things that we don't agree with. Maybe they, they use their profits to support the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras. Maybe the medical practice that you attend provides selective abortions. Perhaps the supermarket that you use profits from the misery caused by gambling and gaming. How do you live in a world like that? How do you live in a world like that without being tainted by it and compromised by it? How do you live in a world like that without supporting and promoting evil? And really, that's what these middle chapters of 1 Corinthians are all about. We're looking at chapter 8 and the end of chapter 10. Next week, Steve will be talking to us about the middle section, which deals with some of the same issues from a slightly different slant. But that's what these chapters here are helping us to think about. How do we live well in a world that's radically at odds with God, but a world in which we need to live? We can't go and live in monasteries. How do we live in this world? So Paul begins by introducing the topic. He says in verse 1, Now about food sacrificed to idols. Idolatry, as I said, was everywhere in the Corinthian world, and it would have been impossible to escape. You could not have not rubbed shoulders with it. But what do the Corinthians do about it? Paul gives them some advice in verse 4. He says, So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come, and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Paul Paul is saying there that although lots of people claim that there are other gods, you know, there's um, the god Zeus or whoever else it might be, uh, although they might claim that there are other gods, we know as Christians, we know that they're not, they don't actually exist. They're just fake. Uh, And so there's only one true God, the God of heaven and earth, uh, and one Lord Jesus Christ, So food that has passed through an idol temple isn't somehow subject to the control of other gods because those gods aren't real. They're not there. It's just meat. Whatever its history is, it's just meat. He says in verse 8, Food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Doesn't matter if the meat's come from the abattoir or if it's come from the temple, it doesn't take us further away from God or bring us closer to God. It's just food. He says to later in chapter 10, verse 25 eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The earth belongs to God, including the meat. Paul says, so just so eat with thankfulness. Don't worry about where it's come from. So the basic point is that 
things are not polluted by their origins. They're not polluted or tainted by where they've come from. The fact that meat comes from the, mar- from the temple doesn't matter. It's just meat. Uh, the people who offered the meat to the idol, they've sinned, okay, because they've been caught up in idolatry. But people who buy the meat after that have not sinned by buying it. And neither have they contributed to idolatry or participated in it by buying that meat, right? So many Christians today would make the argument that simply by buying the meat, you're contributing to idolatry because you're providing a livelihood for people. So if you uh, buy the meat that's been used in the temple, then you're supporting that industry. Uh, And so implicitly, you're supporting idolatry. Uh, But Paul says, that's not the case. You don't need to worry about that. Uh, In fact, that's, if you care, that's actually a kind of example of the genetic fallacy of of kinds. That is, that it's where something has come from. If where it's come from is evil, then it itself must be evil as well. But that doesn't hold true. It it, uh, mustn't, doesn't always have to be true. So, for example, lots of Medical advancements came through the terrible and brutal experiments that the Nazis carried out in their concentration camps. They did lots of horrendous, brutal, uh, terrifying research on people. They, They used people as guinea pigs. A lot of medical knowledge came out of that. A lot of medical knowledge that has been helpful in the development in areas of medicine. But the fact that the information came from those experiments doesn't make the information itself untrue or tainted or corrupt. Using that information doesn't make us complicit in the evil of the Nazis. Where the information comes from doesn't make the information itself evil. Paul says it's the same with food sacrificed to idols. That it's come from the temple doesn't matter. Now, to understand the principle that he's getting at, it's helpful to flip to the other side and try and think about where this principle doesn't apply. So, the principle wouldn't apply to actual idolatry. That might sound kind of obvious, but (laughs) but let me explain. You couldn't say, well, I'm offering this sacrifice to Zeus to worship and to praise Zeus because I know that Zeus isn't actually real. I know he's not a god, but I'm going to do it anyway to worship and to praise Zeus. You couldn't do that because what you're doing is actually wrong, right? You're actually participating in idolatry, not just the byproducts of somebody else's idolatry. So you couldn't say, again, as the Corinthians did, that sleeping with a prostitute is okay because our bodies don't matter. That's what they were saying back in chapter 6. You can't say that because... Our bodies do matter, and sleeping with a prostitute is actually wrong. So Paul's not saying, if you think it's okay, and you feel all right about it, it's okay for you. He's not saying that. What he's saying is uh, that the byproducts of sin are not in themselves necessarily sinful. So he's not saying if you feel okay with sleeping with a prostitute, that's okay. Or if you feel like watching a movie with lots of sex scenes in it, that's okay. As long as you're okay with it, as long as it doesn't harm your conscience, then that's fine. He's not saying that. 
But he is saying this. If a pornography production company, for some unknown reason, makes a comedy that's entirely clean, free of sexual immorality, and they make a wonderful family movie, there's nothing wrong with that film. See what he's saying? He's saying where things come from does not necessarily make them wrong. So imagine that in the future, all public hospitals are funded by the profits of abortion. So you go to the hospital, you never have to pay a cent because the hospitals thrive off the fees that people pay for abortion or the whatever. They make their money through abortion. Would it be okay to go to the hospital? Yes. Even if you knew the treatment was funded by abortions? Yes. The idea is here that we're not implicated in the sins of others simply by association. And that's a very important principle for us to get our heads around, I think, because increasingly it will become more important. So more and more the people in the business and the governments around the world are promoting things that we are deeply opposed to, we find deeply problematic. How do we live in a world like that? If we think that everything that comes from a tainted person or organisation is itself tainted, we, we won't be able to engage in society. Is it okay to buy halal meat or kosher meat? Is it okay to buy meat like that, that's been prepared in a way that honours other gods? Yes. Can we fly with airlines that openly support gay marriage uh, or the, the Mardi Gras? Yes, we can. In the US, many Christians are terrified of a public health care system and even compulsory private health care because they're afraid that they will be contributing to a system that will be used to fund abortions. But according to the logic that God gives us here, if we pay money to a health insurer and someone else uses that money for evil ends, we're not guilty by association. The Roman government of Paul's day used money for all kinds of hideously ungodly things. But that didn't stop them, didn't stop Jesus from telling them to pay their taxes. The Roman government was founded on things like slavery, the abuse of people, the conquering of the brutal conquering of other empires. Did the Christians use the aqueducts and the public baths that were funded by that money? Paul says the byproducts of sin are not necessarily in themselves sinful. We can't abide those things in the church, we can't abide sin in the church, but we do, to some extent, have to live with those realities in the world around us because we don't control the world. What about things like fair trade and buying clothes from companies that mistreat their workers? What do we do about that? 
as I said before, an idea of growing prominence in our world is that buying things from companies that have immoral practices makes us complicit in their practices. That makes us as guilty as they are. If they use slave labour and we buy their products, then we are promoting slave labour. If I use coal-generated electricity, then I'm guilty of destroying the, the environment. That's the argument that's given. But using the logic that Paul gives here, that's not the case. Part of the reason that that idea is sustainable is because we have some measure of choice over what we buy and we can look at companies and say, well, that company does better in this area than that company and we can make a choice. But Paul was living in a day where there was very little choice, where most things were tainted. But he even says when you go to the market and some food is not from the temple and some food is, you don't need to even bother about asking the question. Just buy it. And don't, matter where, don't worry about where it's come from. The products, byproducts of sin, of sin are not in themselves sinful. That said, uh, Paul does also say that love comes into the equation. So even though we may not be guilty by association when we buy things from companies that mistreat workers or whatever it is, we can, positively, I think, as an act of love and kindness, where we are able to, we can make choices that use out to use our money in ways that protects workers uh, or protects whatever it is, the environment. Uh, but we don't do that because buying cheap chocolate is a sin and we're implicated in the sin of that. Rather, we do it, I think, because our love for those made in the image of God urges us to do so. So we can make that choice, but it's not because to do the other would be, would be in and of itself sinful. So that's the first principle. We're not guilty of the sins of others simply by association. But, Paul says, in the rest of this passage, he says, that doesn't give us a free hand to do whatever we want. He says, our freedom is constrained by love. Just touched on that a little bit. But in particular, our freedom is constrained by love in that we need to be careful about the message that our actions convey. Uh, so that is, our actions can convey a message to those around us that we maybe don't realise. And Paul gives two examples in chapter 8 and 10 of how that works. So the first is with regard to a Christian, and the second is with regard to an unbeliever. So the Christian is in chapter 8. He says in verse 1, We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. The knowledge he's talking about is that knowledge that the byproducts of sin are not in themselves necessarily sinful. But Paul says there's a way of using that knowledge that is prideful and damaging rather than loving and upbuilding. How is that the case? He says in verse 7, Not everyone possesses this knowledge. Not everyone knows what you know. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. So Paul says that by eating the idol meat, we do something to somebody else's conscience. 
Now, at first glance, it might seem that Paul means maybe that if you eat idol meat and somebody else, another Christian, sees you, so you eat the idol meat and you know that idols aren't real gods, but they don't know that and they see you, then maybe they'll get really upset about it and so their conscience will be wounded, right? Uh, we might think that, or maybe we'll think that if uh, you, know, you eat idol meat and uh, they don't have the knowledge that you have, then maybe they'll eat it, and then afterwards they'll wake up the next morning and they'll feel really bad about it, and they'll think, oh my goodness, I've done the wrong thing, and so we've wounded their conscience. Right? That might be what we think is going on here, but that's not what's going on. Both those understandings uh, think of the conscience acting, looking back retrospectively, making people feel bad about something that's already happened. But it's important to understand that the term conscience, when it's used in the New Testament, is much more often a guide for making judgments about how to live than it is a retrospective thing for evaluating our past behaviour. It does have a part in that, but that's not the, the main thing. So too, when we think about the word conscience and damage to a conscience, we tend to think in terms of someone being hurt. So, someone being upset about something or, or other. Uh, but that's not the way that the New Testament thinks of the conscience. The damage that is done to the conscience, typically in the New Testament, uh, damaging the conscience means, if you like, damaging it such that it makes no longer makes correct decisions in line with the Word of God and the plan and purpose of God. So a, a damaged conscience is one that makes bad or incorrect decisions about what's right and wrong. A clear conscience, a clean conscience, a good conscience in the New Testament is one that's aligned with the Word of God. So it's not about feeling bad, but about making good decisions. It's really the conscience in the New Testament is really another word for the Hebrew term heart. It's the inner disposition by which we make decisions about what it means to live for God. So the issue here is not that you'll make someone else feel bad. The issue is that your actions will subtly teach someone that something is okay when it isn't. So that becomes clear in verse 10. If someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So you'll teach them that something is okay when it isn't. Uh, Paul says that's particularly an issue for those who've grown up thinking that idolatry is okay. So here's an example. Imagine that a Buddhist comes to faith in Jesus. Now, you know that Buddha is not a god or a teacher that leads us to God. Uh, and so you buy a little concrete statue of a, of a Buddha. Uh, and uh, you have it in your garden. Uh, and you invite this new ex-Buddhist Christian around to your house. And they come over to your house and they see the Buddha in the garden. Now, to you, you just think of that little Buddha statue maybe as just like a quaint garden gnome. 
uh, you know, that's just a bit fat. <laughs> you know that, okay? But they don't know that. They see the Buddha in your garden and they think, that's really strange. Carl has a Buddha in his garden. That must mean that, uh, that he incorporates, he, you know, some of the truths of, of, of Buddhism can still apply in Christianity. You know? Buddha can still lead us to truth. We can combine some of those things. It's obviously that those two things are not at odds. Do you see? The knowledge that you have is not knowledge that they have. And so by your actions, you teach them that something is okay when it isn't. They see you eating the idol in the te- they see you eating the, the food that's been sacrificed to idols. They've grown up with idolatry and they think, oh, it must be okay. There's no issue with that. Eating, uh, worshipping other idols uh, is not a problem. So Paul says we need to be careful that our freedom doesn't lead our fellow believers into sin because they misunderstand our actions and in doing so, they then become emboldened uh, to sin in some particular way. They think that something is okay when it actually isn't. And so Paul says we need to curtail our freedom, limit it out of love so that we don't lead others astray. We could eat the meat, it's fine, uh, but people may misunderstand that. Second, Paul talks about the unbeliever, and it's really the same example, uh, but in a different light. So he says... We're not guilty of sin by association with others' sin, uh, by the byproducts of their sin. Uh, but we do need to think about how we do those things so we don't lead other Christians astray. And then he says the same about unbelievers. He says in chapter 10, verse 27, If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. So Paul says to the Corinthians, if you go to someone's house, you don't need to worry about where the meats come from, except if they mention it. If they mention it, then you shouldn't eat. Now clearly, again, in this case, uh, the person who offered you the meat has no problems with eating it. Okay, that's why they've offered you the food. Uh, So you wouldn't be hurting their feelings by eating the meat. So this isn't an issue of hurting somebody else's conscience in that wounding sense. In fact, by not eating the meat, you're in danger of hurting them. And yet that's what Paul says that we should do. So why does he say not to eat it? Well, again, the issue is that once the person has told you that this meat has been sacrificed to an idol, and if you eat it, then they may misunderstand that you are generally supportive of idolatry. So imagine you're invited to the house of your Hindu friend. You sit down to eat, they bring up the main course, looks amazing. Uh, And then they say, before we eat, let's be thankful to Annapurna for... Uh, this meat that's been offered to her in gratitude for her gracious gift. Paul says, don't eat it. Don't eat, but say, my dear friend, 
this is very awkward for me uh, because I love you dearly, but I can't eat the food, food that's been offered to another God. The social awkwardness, uh, God says, is better than uh, making your friend think or allowing your friend to think that their God is real. So too, if you went to the house of a Muslim friend who prayed before the meal, O our Lord, give us blessing in the sustenance you have given us. Keep us from the torments of hell in the name of Allah. You'd have to say, my dear friend, this is very awkward for me because I love you, but I can't eat this this food that's been offered, attributed to a God that I don't follow that I don't believe in. The issue here is not hurting someone's feelings. Clearly, it will be very difficult to do this. But the issue is what your behaviour communicates about the truth of who God is and whether these other gods are real or not. So back to the example that Paul gives in chapter 8 about eating in an idol temple. In chapter 10, Paul clearly shows that he thinks that would be wrong to do. You know it's not a god, but actually if you're participating in idol food in the temple, then really that's an act of idolatry. But it would also be wrong because it communicates a message to those who see you there, whether that's unbelievers or weak believers, it communicates a message that says, this is okay, to live like this is okay. But if the idol temple was in the middle of the desert and no one was around and you stumbled across it and there was some spare meat left there after the most recent sacrifices and you were a bit hungry and it was free for the taking, it would be okay to eat that meat because you're not participating in idolatry. And by your behaviour, you're not influencing anybody or teaching them that some things are okay. In what other situations might this principle come into play? Let me give one example before we finish. You might have heard of the famous wedding cake example uh, that that came up in the debate over same-sex marriage in the US and also here in Australia. Uh, And so it's a helpful example uh, to take because it was an example of how Christian businesses are impacted by the society around them. So suppose that you're a wedding cake maker and a lady comes in to order a cake. She asks you to make just a basic fruit cake, just a basic wedding cake, uh, whatever with the stock standard icing, whatever wedding cakes look like, I'm not sure. Now, you don't know Uh, And the lady hasn't told you, and there's no reason to suspect it. Uh, But it's actually for the wedding. It's for her wedding, but uh, she's getting married to her same-sex partner. Now, following Paul's wisdom here, he would say, if you don't know anything about it, if you have no reason to believe, there's no issue. Make the cake. But if, on the other hand, the lady comes in and says, can you make this cake for Veronica and I? Uh, We're getting married. 
Uh, and can you put on the top of that cake this figure of uh, two women in bridal gowns holding hands uh, and kissing? Uh, then you would have to say, at that point, you would have to say no. But here's the thing, Paul says, you do it not for your own sake, but for their sake. So that it's clear to them that what they're doing is not in line with God's plan and purpose for the world. This is not okay. At the end of the day, the point that Paul is making is that we have this immense freedom in the gospel. We're not polluted by the world around us. Jesus has cleansed us from sin, purified us by his blood, deposited in us the Holy Spirit. We're not polluted by the world around us. But we, at times, out of love, need to limit our freedom, limit what we can do, what we do do, for the sake of those around us, so that they would not be led astray into thinking that sin is okay. Paul says, at the end of these verses, he says that everything he does, he does it not for his own good, but so that others might be saved. He limits his freedom for the sake of others. He limits it by love. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, uh, it's hard, Lord, to live for you in a world that is tainted and corrupted by, by sin, a world that's founded on, uh, on foundations that are, are different to, um, to you, that are separate from you, that are against you. And Lord, we rub up against that in every day of our lives. Lord, help us to know what it, we can do uh, and what is, what is okay to do and will not corrupt us or lead us into sin. But Lord, please also teach us what it means out of love to limit what we can do for the sake of the understanding of others, whether that's other believers uh, or those who are not Christians. Lord, we pray that uh, you would teach us to do that so that your name would be honoured and glorified in the world. Lord, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.